So we're going to be in Scripture. We're going to be in Galatians in a moment. I invite you to grab whatever Bible you use, whether it's online or whether it's your hard copy. And uh, I want to say a few things before we jump into this. We have been moving book by book through the whole Bible, which will take us through the summer. It's been very, very rich. And if you can see behind me, we have in the red line of books, all the Old Testament books we've already touched upon. And now we are in Lent and moving into those books written by Paul, or those letters, actually. And before we get into Galatians, just to uh, be aware that Paul is really unhappy. Uh, angry is an appropriate word. So angry that unlike the other letters that he writes, he skips right over the nice, pleasant greeting and the thanksgivings, and he just cuts right to the chase. So why is Paul so angry? Well, he's having this amazing experience of going town to town and talking about who Jesus is as God's Messiah. And it's almost like he barely needs to say anything before the Gentiles are responding immediately and enthusiastically and coming to Christ and becoming followers of Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's just this amazing thing. And after every town that he goes to and has this happen, right afterward, Jewish leader, leaders are coming into that town and telling these new disciples of Christ, no, you have to get circumcised and follow the Jewish law in order to be saved. It was a huge debate that was going on at the time. And there's so many things that were frustrating about this for Paul. One is that they had already all gone to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas and the apostles and the elders, and they had hashed this out. And they had talked about whether or not these Gentile believers needed to follow the Jewish law to be circumcised or not. And after talking about it at length and what the Spirit of God was doing and telling stories about this, they said, no, let's not put that yoke upon them, something that we haven't even been able to live out. Let's not trouble these Gentile believers anymore. Well, since that time of clarifying what their stance was, now some of these leaders, including Barnabas, who was on the missionary journeys with Paul and saw all this happen with the Gentiles, and Peter who was the first one to bring the good news to the Gentiles, they are now changing their tune. They are now becoming more convinced that maybe these um, people that insist on the law are right. So it's frustrating, and he's angry. How do you Galatians uh, even believe this? This is completely distorting and perverting the good news, the gospel. Well, to be fair, it was a very difficult debate. If you think about the, the first leaders in the early church who are Jewish, just like Jesus, and their understanding of what it means to be in relationship with the living God, it was all through the Torah. It was the Torah, the law, that helped them know who God was, to know God's covenant, to be in relationship with the living God. The Torah, the law, was absolutely essential for their covenant relationship with God. So they could not imagine somebody knowing God, somebody walking with God without that, without the law, without the Ten Commandments, without the Shema, without the covenant requirements. How in the world could someone be in a living relationship with God? 
It's kind of like somebody becoming a, a citizen of the United States and not having to learn the Constitution or the laws of the land or answer any questions or be sworn in. There have to be some requirements, right? Something essential. So what did Jesus have to say about the law? Let's just hear those words because he does comment in his Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus is affirming that the law is holy. It's good. It is God's good gift for God's people. And yet the law did not have the power to help the people keep it, fulfill it. Only Jesus was able to do that and did it for us. So here's the bottom line before we jump into Galatians and continue in these letters as we keep going through the New Testament. The bottom line for Paul is this. It is God's goodness in Jesus Christ that saves us, period. Not our goodness not our good works. That's the gospel. So if you want to know what the point of the sermon is today or the point of Paul's sermons constantly, it is God's goodness in Jesus Christ that saves us, not ours. All right, let's pray, and then we'll get into Galatians 2, 15 to 21. God, we wait upon you so grateful for the gift of your word fulfilled in Jesus Christ, spoken so fully and completely in Jesus Christ. And we ask that we will hear you speak to us today through the scripture, through my words. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Galatians 2, six verses here, 15 to 21. Listen to God's word to you. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. This is the gift of God's word, and I want you to look again at verse 16, okay? Let's look at that together. I mean, if you were actually going to grab a red pen and write in your Bibles, which I'm not going to ask you to do. I'd ask you to do that. But verse 16 says this. 
We know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law because no one will be justified by the works of the law. How many times does Paul have to keep repeating the same point? Just to make it perfectly clear, three times he says in that one verse, we are not made right, a.k.a. justified. We are not made right with God by what we do but only by what God has done in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to say it one more time, because this is not the last time we're going to confront this problem. It is God's goodness in Jesus Christ that saves us, not ours. You know, Presbyterianism was born out of this debate. Did you know that? In the 16th century, the Reformation, 1517 was the year. There was another very angry leader, a monk, a young monk named Martin Luther, and he wrote out furiously 95 reasons, criticisms against the Pope and the church at the time, and he hammered it on the church door of the Wittenberg Church, which is what is now Germany, but it was the Roman Empire at that time, and he was charging the Pope with distorting the gospel by insisting, and it wasn't just the Pope, but church leaders throughout the church, if someone was sinning and wanted to get right with God, they were told that they had to participate in what was called indulgences, certain behaviors that they had to do, certain money that they had to pay. So Martin Luther's like, what? You have to do these things in order to be right with God? No. We are saved by Christ's merits alone, alone, period. Sola fide, it's a Latin phrase, justification by faith in Christ alone. And you know, Paul knew this firsthand because Paul, if you know his story whatsoever, was one of the most perfectly obedient Jews you could find. He talks about this in his letter to the Philippians when he said, according to righteousness uh, or righteousness according to the law, I was blameless. You couldn't find a more perfect person following the law of God. And yet, Paul was far from what God was doing. He was actually opposing those who were following Jesus Christ, was going after them, arresting them, even consenting to their death. And yet, in his lostness, Jesus reaches to him, meets him, confronts him, saves him. And after that experience of being on such a dead end with the law, and yet God still meeting him in his sinfulness and lostness, he shifted his approach. I have died to the law, he says. And then he refers to what I would call baptism language. When he says, I've been crucified with Christ, gone down with Christ into his death, been raised with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. He had to die to his own righteousness, trying to save himself by his own good works in order to live into Christ's righteousness and to let Christ's righteousness live in him. And so he's mad over the situation in Galatia 
where all these different churches have been infiltrated by Jewish teachers and they're believing it. He's saying, what are you doing? You started with grace. Why are you shifting now to works? If you do that, that is not the gospel. If your salvation is dependent on your good works, friends, that is not good news. I remember years ago, there was a women's retreat, and I don't remember who the speaker was, but I do remember her sharing this pretty well-known poem. I'd never heard it before. It's by Mary Oliver. It's called Wild Geese. And it's the first line. Somehow she must have prepared us to listen to it, perhaps close our eyes. It, there's, I'm not going to read to you the whole poem, but the first line is what absolutely stunned me. And this is the first line. You do not have to be good. I remember hearing that line and almost gasping out loud, thinking, what? I don't have to be good? I think like all the other women in that room who are people who have been shaped a lifetime of learning that we did have to be good in order to have our parents' approval, in order to have our teachers' approval, in order to get good enough grades to get into college, you have to be beyond good in order to have that application and get the job or get the increase in the salary or whatever kind of competition. The whole world is based on our performance and our goodness, but not the gospel. Not the gospel. And that's why we get them confused constantly. Our relationship with God is based completely on what Christ has done for us. Period. There's a certain preacher who once declared there are two kinds of religion in the world those that say, do, 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 and only one that says, done. Christ has done it all. But wait, you might be saying, isn't there anything that we're supposed to do as followers of Jesus Christ? Yes. If you look at what Paul talks about in this brief paragraph, we are asked to die to ourselves and live to Christ and allowing Christ to live in us. Later on in his letter, he talks about the fruits of the Spirit. This is what letting Christ live in us will produce. Later in the book of James, we're going to hear about being doers of the word because being alive in Christ, dying to ourselves and letting Christ live in us will produce something. And so we are schooled in Christian community so we can know what that looks like to be aligned with the life of Christ in us and us in Christ. But beware. Beware of the temptation to make salvation all about you and not about the sufficiency of what Christ has done and who Christ is in our lives. It's so easy for us to go down that road. Even in the good things that we do, even in our spiritual practices, 
we can easily begin to believe that it's because of my prayer life, it's because I'm reading scripture, it's because of these good things that I do that I am right with God, that's making me right with God. Instead of focusing on what God has done and realizing that these practices basically place us on the path where we can let Christ meet us and quicken life in us. We can think that it's about what we do. We can also think it's about what we don't do. So that if we mess up and if we stray, then that has changed God's posture toward us and toward me. No. God's posture toward us is always grace. It is always love. Recently, uh, Erica Skemper, who is a Presbyterian pastor known to this congregation, recently her family moved to Minnesota. She wrote a piece in Faith Plus Leader. It's titled, Why I'm Not Worried About My Kids Missing Virtual Church. In a way that's so typical of Erica, very honest about the fact that she and her husband were out Sunday morning, walking the dog, getting lattes while their three kids were back at home, the 16-year-old, 10-year-old, 6-year-old, 14-year-old rather, probably in bed, probably on the couch looking at the iPad or the Xbox. And it was coming to the time when the children's ministry would be posting this virtual event for the kids, which was well done, but they had tried to get the kids to watch it and there really wasn't much motivation there. So they didn't hurry back to get the kids on. And they basically took their time, but they got back so that they could be a part of the worship service at 10 o'clock. She writes this. My 2019 self would be appalled at this state of affairs. Unsupervised children, unlimited screen time, and gasp Sunday morning, and we're doing absolutely nothing to fulfill the vows we made when our children were baptized. What has happened to us? Children and teens, she goes on later in the article, are tapped out. She's giving them grace, stressed, living with the trauma of this last year. They pick up on the stressors their parents and their society are living through, much as we may try to shield them. Our children's worlds have shrunk. We have asked so much of them, and there is so much uncertainty. And so I hope and pray we are getting ready to move into a new phase as we move forward. I hope all of us, parents and church professionals alike, will begin to think creatively about how we return, but also to give ourselves some grace to let go of things that haven't worked in the past. Give ourselves grace. I think she has an excellent sense of God's goodness in Jesus Christ. Giving grace when we don't know how to get it right or what doing it right would even look like. And perhaps you have felt that way during this pandemic. I know I have as a pastor. And the need for grace, we've even talked about that. Kurt and I have talked about that, just this need to extend grace to one another. You do not have to be good. You do not have to be a perfect parent. You do not have to be a perfect teacher or a perfect student, or a perfect pastor, or a perfect Christian. You do not have to follow the Ten Commandments to be right with God. You foolish Galatians, Paul writes, you do not have to fulfill the Jewish law and be circumcised in order to be right with God. Sola 
fide. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ in his merits alone. So let me repeat three times, not by works, not by our works, not by our good works, whether we do them or don't do them. The new life we live comes from him who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Thank you for the fullness of your grace, fullness of the gift of the law that has been completely lived out, your covenant love in Jesus Christ, not only your love toward us, O God, but the love you ask for from us, that you have given it to us in his living, in his dying, in his resurrection life, alive in us now. Free us, O God, in this constant struggle, believing falsely that we have to earn, that we have to perform, that we have to do in order to be right with you. We praise you that you've done it all, Christ. We ask you would fill us anew with that freedom and that joy and that confidence and that ability to extend grace to ourselves to our children, to our loved ones, to our friends, family, to your world. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.